this is Beyond Babel, and this is I'm Acer. Hello, how are you doing? And I'm Paul Boyd. How are you doing this morning, Acer? <laughs> I'm doing okay. So first, we wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to ourselves. Um, I am an undergraduate student. I am majoring in a couple different things: sociology, German. Um, I don't even know the other one at this point. Uh, and moderate international politics. And and you, Paul. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Paul. I started out as a business major, but I'm also uh, an undergrad student as well. Um, I'm a philosophy major, um, and I enjoy enjoy talking philosophy and history and all that jazz so i hope we make this show interesting for you guys and i hope you guys learn a lot and take a lot away from the show and you know we don't want to come across as being instructors we want to make history fun so what do you say to that acer <laughs> i absolutely agree so our purpose of the show is we're going to go through the periods of time in jewish history and sort of just look at what's been going on both in the Israelite community and what's been going on on the outside. Um, we are not experts, so <laughs> please take everything we say yes. with a grain of salt. <laughs> we are just looking at different questions that we're going to be asking each other throughout the podcast, and each week we are going to be finding answers to those questions. Um, that is effectively what we're doing. I will be tackling specifically the ancient Israelite community all the way up to uh, the present and Paul will be focusing on the surrounding cultures and history. Yes, my my, ex, my area of expertise will be analyzing you know, through the cultural lens, the philosophies of these different civilizations and the things that shape uh, human interactions, um, using the geography, of course, and the different time periods as our lens. You know, as always, we'll keep everything in context with that, with these time periods. You know, because it's easy for us to have what they call that hindsight bias. You know, we, we're able to, we have the luxury of looking back on history and critiquing it from, you know, the, the, the current lenses of today. Whereas we want to explore what it was like in those time periods and use those stories and historical uh, uh, feats as evidence to show how they are still relevant today and how they have shaped, you know, even day, modern day culture as well. So. so with that, I guess we should get started get with going. some history. Okay. This is our first podcast. Please be gentle with us. <laughs> yes, we're not experts again, and this is our first show, so we're going to make a lot of mistakes, but, you know, we're human, so we're okay with that. Mistakes are good. We learn from them, people. And don't be too all critical of us. And so if you wanted to start with asking me the first questions. All right. So my first question to you, Mrs. Acer, could you provide some insights into the pre-Exodus era of ancient Israel and discuss how its geographical location played a role in shaping its development? Sounds like a pop quiz. <laughs> um, so no pressure. A lot of pressure was fine. <laughs> no. Um, so I actually 
dove, like I did a whole deep dive um, this past weekend on various uh, Israeli archaeological societies. And I found a lot of stuff that I didn't actually think I would find. The specific era that we're kind of talking about right now is approximately like 4000 BCE to 2500 BCE. Um, and so that is like right in the middle of the Bronze Age. And if no one's super familiar with the Bronze Age. It's right before the Iron Age. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it, we don't really know a lot about this. There's always history. an age, right? There's always an age. And it's just like people are struggling, but also like kind of finding their place. Like this is around the time where a lot of areas in the world are having like more permanent settlements. Some areas already have had this, but this is approximately the time where people start to settle down and actually like build a society. Um, and so we also see this in the Mesopotamian Bronze Age. Um, and if you don't know where Mesopotamia is, it's sort of like the region is above Israel, kind of spreads like a, from like the Syria, modern day like Syria, all the way to Iraq, um, modern day Iraq. And it is a huge hub of civilization. And so the very earliest civilization that Paul will expand a lot more on um, is the Sumerians, and they are from Mesopotamia. Essentially, what we see among the ancient Israelites is they populate, as we all do, among the fertile regions of the area. So lots of rivers, you know, you, you got to go where you, you got to go. <laughs> yes, water is important, people. Water is so important. I need to drink more of it. Um, and so they go there. They're, the early villages are, like, very unorganized. They're very, like, they're still, like, thinking in, I guess, a nomadic mindset where people just aren't thinking about settling anywhere permanently at this point. Um, they're sort of, like, clusters of villages, wide open spaces. But this is also where we see, like, the very early developments of uh, Canaanite uh, pot pottery. And we also see the beginnings of olive cultivation, which is actually still huge today, not only among Jews living in Israel, but also among Palestinians. Um, and so it's very interesting to see these sort of early roots all the way back, what would that be, like 4,000 years 4, ago, years. right? <laughs> like that's, that's wild that that tradition is still around. Um, and so people sort of went from this very nomadic lifestyle, and now that they're living in places where they can cultivate crops and are actually like sitting down and doing that, they be, they form an economy that essentially relies on not only just field crops, but also vineyards, the olives, also animal agriculture has become a pretty big thing at this point. Um, well, it's emerging into a bigger thing, I should say. Um, and also, interestingly enough, around and Paul will definitely talk more about this as well, around 3,300 BCE, there are these little Egyptian colonies that are on the southern part of the Canaan lands. And I did a lot of digging, and no one knows why they're there. Mm, <laughs> um, interesting. It, yeah, right? Like, it's a little bit creepy like, yes. <laughs> and mysterious. Yes. So, like, there have been a bunch of different theories. Some people think it's part of, like, an Egyptian attempt to, like, expand their territory. Some part, some people are thinking it's more of an occupation. Um, some people think it's just trading settlements. They don't know how affiliated they are or are not to the early Egyptian, like, dynasties that are forming. And so that's very interesting. And they are there for around 200 years, and they 
they just sort of disappear and no one knows why. And I also felt that kind of wild. Um, do we have a conspiracy going I on? I think we do. Like, I can build a conspiracy off of that. Yes, like, I'll yes, be like, yes. they were aliens. They were like, <laughs> I could do all kinds of stuff with that. But they definitely were influencing the surrounding culture because one of the things that was noted is there's a temple that I'm probably going to mispronounce this a little bit, but um, in the town of Tel Megiddo, where mm. it, they could tell by the temple's architecture that was very strongly influenced by Egyptian culture. So there was at least some kind of exchange of like information and ideas that was happening too. Um, remember that name, people, Megiddo. This is going to come up later. Yeah, remember it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the area itself can be divided just to a little bit of, I guess, uh, what do you call it, like geography context. Yes. Um, there's three main areas. The first is the northern area, which is modern-day Golan Heights and a little bit of the surrounding area around that. Um, then there's also the Galilee, the Jisrael Valley, and the Jordan Rift Valley, which is the third area. Um, there's also, which I find found this really interesting, in the Negev, which for those unfamiliar is sort of like a very large expanse of desert. And again, the emphasis on the desert. They found some of the very earliest permanent settlements. So like in this mm -hmm. desert... People were settling down, so I don't know if it's because there were it was more like of a luscious sort of vegetation mm -hmm. there. I feel like there wasn't, um, but people were settling down, so those were the earliest uh, settlements in that region. And funnily enough, <laughs> fun fact is that the Negev is the oldest discovered surface on the planet, and it's 1.8 million years old. Yeah, so mm. that's kind of exciting. Yes. Just want to nerd out about that for a moment. And if I'm not mistaken, right, then they uh, they've proved that there was also once water sources there as well because of some of the settlement or the sediment that you know gets settled into Ooh. the ground. Yeah, so. I didn't know that. Yes, okay, yes. so that could be why. Maybe there's so like you won't have a civilization without water. Yeah, Keep that in mind, maybe you know? they were keeping track of like tapping into some kind of mm -hmm. like underground yeah. water source. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so that's a thing to look into. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And then, all right, Acer, that was a good segment. I like that. You know, very informative. I learned a lot. Um, Thank you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so, question number two: What were the pivotal factors that influenced the early identity of the Israelite people? And could you offer insights into their daily life, social structure, and family dynamics? Another tough one. <laughs> oh, this is easy. Is it easy? Yeah, I just rely on yourself. Oh, yes. I myself, Pull on your own experiences, My too. own experiences as a modern-day ancient Israeli. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that they sort of... There was, like, a transition. So next week, we're also going to talk a little bit more about the Bronze Age, but right now is the early Bronze Age, and there was this interesting transition that we'll talk a little bit more about later from the kind of societies that they have right now to not right now, right now, but right now where we're talking about, um, but to a very different form of settlement. And so right now in the year 3100 BCE, um, they had the sort of the sort of urbanization process that was happening where 
these towns started being established. These They went from being very unorganized and slowly started to become more organized and more structured and having temples in the center of town. And and they had like these very like urban uh, centered environments. So how would you define urban? In the what terms of urban? like the building of cities. Okay. <laughs> it would be it would be what would make it. So like you have these little set of settlements and over time they start to like expand out, become more permanent, develop more structure, and they become like huge well huge in that time period, yeah. huge cities. Um, now, will these urban developments still be tribe or family centered, like in their, uh, like their origin, like their makeup? So, like, will the family be on this block or this particular part of town, or would it be more of a tribe? You know, and it, then they just come together to form these urban areas, or is it just something that just happens, like entropy? This is a very hard question. <laughs> um, well, it seems like they had their, you know, more, I guess, family settlements. Mm. And because over time, we'll see that there's actually, like, social hierarchy and early forms of social stratification that mm. start to form in these towns. And eventually, you see very different sections of the city. So you'll see, like, a palace, mm. and then you'll see very, like, affluent sort of housing. And then you'll see these very, like, smushed-together settlements mm. where, obviously, like, poorer people were living. Right. And so... It's kind of like that makeup. It actually doesn't feel oh, so that they had different. Ancient slums? Yeah, like it doesn't feel different. I'm like, oh, what like, like, yeah. Why? Like, why? Like, I, I don't know. I had a very different view of like mm-hmm. what old cities would look like, and it was not similar. Yeah, so not just similar, like this right? capitalist pig why sitting off happen? of the throne. Yeah. Like, why does this happen, people? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. To all the viewers, why? <laughs> why is this palace here? Um, yeah, so there was that those kind of settlements. I don't know specifically like if there were tribal. I don't know if they even know enough about like tribal identities at mm. that time where they would know. This is like before the Canaanites started to split off into groups. Mm. So like they're gotcha. all kind of clustered together. Um, so they don't have like a Phoenician group or like an Israelite yes, group yes, at this yes. point. Um, but I could always look more into like if there was specific tribal uh, identities with that they did also have a lot of trading it seems like with the surrounding societies um some of the ones i found were like egypt hati mitani and assyria and there were some maritime cultures that were around on the coast that did a lot of trading with them as well oh, so they did have boats people they did have boats <laughs> <laughs> and one of the interesting things that you could find according to archaeologists, is that there are these little, like, pottery. Like, pottery was a very big thing. People relied on it. And a lot of people um, had would hand-make their own pottery. So if you wanted a cup, you're making that cup, basically, is how it went down. Um, but there was expert artisan potters, right? And they found some of these very, like... And I should also preface in this and say that there was distinctive styles of pottery depending on like the specific region mm-hmm. in the in that area and so there's a specific style of like northern levantine pottery that they would find in the south and so like they know that that style came from that northern uh, region and so people were sort of trading that way and they were getting these more artisanal and when uh, you say pots. levantine are these any relation to the levites 
Um, not at this time. Okay. It's just the name of the region, basically okay. the Levantine region. Um, and then Mesopotamia is like above that. <laughs> Slight, like right above that. Um, and so the other thing that kind of is happening a lot during this time is there's a lot of destruction of settlements, rebuilding of settlements, and just like sort of moving around um, different towns. So you'll see like the same town basically built like a bunch of different times. Mm -hmm. And I'm not 100% sure why that really is. <laughs> but they, that is a pattern that is noticed quite often during this period of time. I'm sure that must have affected uh, the family dynamics and the yeah. social structure in some way, but I'm not actually sure yeah. how. Yeah, it's kind of weird, right? Destroy, like, rebuild, yeah, destroy, rebuild, like, destroy, rebuild. Like, what are you doing? Rebuild, like, yes. They're like, it's time for, <laughs> yes. a time for a change of scenery, and yeah. then they like come back, like, I don't even know. <laughs> um, and then around the time of 3,300 3, BCE, there was more trade of interregional, specifically of more luxury goods. Um, and this is when you start to really see sort of the palaces forming that I was talking about and the more like intense forms of social stratification. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, I found this a little bit cuckoo crazy, but around 3100 BCE, a lot of towns started to fortify themselves to like a really ridiculous extent. Like they would have like, they would be like stacked. Mm -hmm. And the archaeologists like, I don't really understand why they're so stacked because at this point, there's no weapons that mm. would warrant like that amount mm. of. So I guess they were paranoid. Like I don't know mm. what exactly was going on there. Um, it could have been a number of things, but. And when you say fortified, you mean with high walls? Yeah, gates. like high walls, okay. like very thick. Like it just like mm. like they were always expecting something to come in and attack mm. them. Interesting borders. Right. So they started putting up borders. Yeah. Ooh, I, I know, right? A little bit like, what are you doing? <laughs> we people in our borders, and some of us don't like borders, some of us do. That's so true. Where's the I balance? Am, yeah, we need to find a balance. <laughs> I am a no borders person, but it's fine. We're, we're bothered. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I guess from there back to like the urban development aspect is they started the more, like, I guess, wealthy cities mm -hmm. started to build extra things. Like, they had, like, early waterworks. They had a bunch of different, like, not municipal, but different urban-centered buildings um, that were more, like, country-empowered. One of the interesting things, though, about the temples that were in the middle of these towns and cities is that, unlike in Mesopotamia, um, which you may or may not know, that they were huge centers for like wealth exchange. Nice. The temples in the Canaanite regions weren't like they were really just there as like almost like symbolically and like mm. there specifically as a means for like ritual practice. Mm. So I thought that was interesting because that could have been a real good way to make some money. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. they did not take that for whatever reason. That's interesting. That does stick out because, you know, later on, you know, we know we know about, the, you know, Canaanites in their origin for them to be pushed to the margins like that knowing the story that we know that we'll eventually talk about yeah. it's interesting it's an interesting thought oh right right yeah it's interesting so that stuck out to me and then by um the 20 2900 bc to like 2500 bc there's development of like distinct classes like in society so like the stratification became very pronounced 
Um, and that's when you really see like the things like the, what are essentially slums um, popping up. And they had a lot of very complex temples that were being sort of erected at this time. And there was something that I found. So what I'm hearing in that, yes. right, Tell me. is there's something natural about how things coagulate and come together and then separate. Like there's a pattern in that. Like we, when we come together, we, in coming together, we form divisions and class systems oh. are developed I see what along the way. And this pattern, you know, when we get to my segment, uh, this pattern I noticed, I noticed from what you're saying is, 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 is something that runs, it's a thread that runs throughout our existence, I see, you know. And like what you're talking about is things being ordered in such a way and the product of that order is obviously these hierarchies that seem to be somewhat naturally formed versus constructed. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. I was actually really surprised by that. I, for some reason, had this vision that tribal societies, you know, there tend to be egalitarian. Mm, and then, like, yeah, there was a yes. gradual, a mm. much more gradual transition between that, like, egalitarian ideals and then into stratification. I felt mm. it was a more of a, like, a modern problem, mm. at, at least in terms of having very distinctive classes. Mm. And apparently it's not. And so. that surprised me a lot. I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> I guess this is just part of us. I yes, don't know. Yes. Um, the human experience. Yeah, the human experience. And one thing you might find specifically interesting is they, so very early on, there's some evidence of distinctive tombs. So like the wealthy had mm -hmm. tombs that were different oh, yeah. than yes, yes. the lower classes. Yes. But later on, they drop that. And the tombs are constructed in the exact same way. Oh, wow. And I don't understand why. Mm. <laughs> So a period of complete order. Yeah, wow. but it, and it okay. still has like even more stratification than before. So mm -hmm. like now there's these big palaces, there's these affluent neighborhoods, there's these slums, but all the tombs are the same. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Some kind of shift in philosophy there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like. Yeah, wow, you got a whole bunch of mysteries going on. I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like conspiracy podcast. We can just fill in the blanks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but. Yeah, I found that very, very interesting. And then the only other thing I think I would add, well, I guess two other things. The first is there's another. So we did talk about the Egyptians that were sort of in the south of Canaan. There's also a group in the north of Canaan that they think um, came from the Caucasus, like the South Caucasus. They don't know really where they came from. Mm. They don't know really which group it is. They have mm. guesses, but they don't know really who it is. And they have very distinct, like they know that they're a foreign population because of like the way they design their buildings and the way that they form pottery and like mm -hmm. all of these things. And they also, that's another one where they don't really know why they're there yeah. or where they came from. So. <laughs> well, you know, you and I read a lot of history, obviously. And what you just pointed out just uh, reminded me of... Uh, uh, a book I read called uh, The Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. And in this book, you know, he's a, uh, he was a scholar. He passed away now. But um, he was very entrenched in Egyptian history. And he also noticed, 
like we were talking about early off air, that there is so much mix and mingling of these different cultures that show up in Egyptian hieroglyphs, in these, you know, stories of Mesopotamia and any all you know surrounding groups that, you know, that we know about on record, right? So that is interesting that, you know, even back then, you know, they weren't as closed off in their own civilizations to the world as, you know, sometimes we are led to believe. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like, I always knew that, um, well, I say always, like, when I could read, <laughs> like, read about things. I, yeah. I, I knew there was, like, a lot of, like, of this idea exchange, but it's very interesting to see that play mm-hmm. out in, like, the, I guess, like, the tapestry of time and, like, right. looking at that and be like, oh, mm-hmm. that group that we mm-hmm. may, like, associate as, like, one culture kind of like look at in a lens is actually like Mm. this is very dynamic like being influenced by all these outside forces so i think that's very interesting and then one of the things that i would like to point out is this change in uh the economy that i mentioned a little bit ago a couple minutes ago um and it's that they had again this urbanized economy there's a lot of trade happening and during this whole process in Syria, there was this development of the textile industry. And Ooh, so, yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. right? And <laughs> the demand for wool increased like exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that demand, this was met by very, like, kind of quickly shifting from this very, like, urbanized economy to back to like this rural pastoral mm. agricultural economy and i thought that was very interesting mm. See? the fluctuations of their stock market yeah exactly <laughs> like i was like wow like you spent all this time building like all yeah. these urban centers and now uh, you're like fuck it i guess yeah. we're just gonna farm sheep like yeah, this is what just, we need to do <laughs> well it just shows you again you know how uh how crazy we, we and how fickle we are as a human, you know, human race. But also, you can't. Uh, anything that operates in one extreme is never going to last. It's always going to be trying to collapse in on itself. So, you know, if we have an extreme amount of, like, we want to put our eggs or, you know, all of our uh, chips into the agricultural basket. Eventually, you know, mining is going to still come up. You know, we we need the mine for this or that. So I just think that the things that you're pointing out, I, I can still see the how civilizations, you know, fluctuate in their extremes and what they find important, but eventually they don't last because those extremes, there's always something pulling, you know, pulling that extreme to come back to be more balanced, you know. Obviously, I'm looking at this because I'm the philosopher, y'all, so forgive me. <laughs> You're making me instantly think of, like, the downfall of the U.S. I'm like, hmm, interesting. (laughs) Extremes, you say. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's another whole... That's a whole different podcast, right? (laughs) All right, so my final question for you, Acer, would be, how how did the events and developments in ancient Israel shape its enduring influence on the religious and cultural heritage of later societies? So oh, this is a big one. This is a big one, and it's actually the one I have the least amount to say, to be honest, mm. just because I feel like there are later developments that mm. do impact like history a lot more. But one interesting thing that 
I did not realize is that the Canaanite towns that were formed during this period actually lay out like a social structure of what towns and cities will look like for the next 2,000 years yep. in that. And that... Interesting. Yeah. Very I was like, wait, what? <laughs> That's, That's how they look. That's a long time span for That's us. a long time. Uh, for civilized, you know, uh, for civilization, I should say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was incredible. And then the other thing that I had mentioned earlier was that the olive tree, the growth of, like, olives mm-hmm. um, as a profession... Yeah, it exists to this day, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's in the vineyards, um, you know, do, uh, we'll get to it a little bit later, but during the Arab takeover of the region and the first, like, caliphates, they instilled laws that prohibited the growth of anything that could be turned into alcohol. And so they destroyed all the vineyards that were there. But before that, the the growth of, like, wine and these vineyards had been a huge practice uh, historically. And... Now it's coming back. Like mm-hmm. Israel's trying to produce their own wine yeah. again. <laughs> I don't know how good it is, but they're trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like those two traditions have continued to this day, or at least one of them has continued. The olives, and the other yes. one's you know trying to make a comeback. Um, and I love olives. I love olives too, and yeah. I love wine. So, like, I hope them they make a yes. strong comeback. You I know, know. <laughs> olives and wine, people, they're good. Yes, wine from the Israelis, olives from the Palestinians. That's what I'm, all I'm going to say. Yeah. 10 out of 10 produce. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that I wanted to mention, just because I feel it's relevant, is the Torah. Um, just quickly mention that, and then I will turn the things to Paul. The Torah. The book. It, yes, it is the, the, it means law, and it's yes. the first five books mm-hmm. of the Tanakh. Um, Christians may know this as the Old Testament, and it goes in sort of the very early periods of creation, so there's different, like... Oh, you know what? I just thought of. Yes. We... The interesting, uh, one of the inter- in- interesting things about this show and your and the hosts are, Acer is Jewish, and I am Christian. Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to mention. I just remember that. Yes, yeah, like we're we're just vibing. Yeah. Um, and so like during this period, there's like a bunch of different timelines that a bunch of different. Jewish scholars like think this could have happened in, um, but I'm just going with the Orthodox one because I mm. think it's the most fun and interesting. And so in the Orthodox timeline, this period that we talked to would actually mark kind of the first part of Genesis, which is also known as Bereshit. And it goes through the creation of Adam and Hava or Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and all the way up until when Noah was born. So it's actually would be before the flood. Uh, according to mm. their timeline. And so I found that interesting. And there's a couple of interesting things I wanted to mention about the Torah before I pass things to Paul. Is the first thing that I would recommend everyone checking out because I think it's super cool is that there are actually two books of Genesis. Or should I, I should more likely say the creation story in Genesis. Um, the fir- And they're both right after each other. So the first Unless one... about one and two and three. Well, the first one mm. takes place in um, Genesis one sixteen to one twenty seven. Oh, okay. And I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh-huh. and so in that story, basically, everything is created before human beings, and when man and woman is created, they're created at the exact same time in God's image. 
Um, and this is actually the part of creation that is reaffirmed later on in Genesis 5, 1 to 2, where it is also said that man and woman were created at the exact same time in God's image. The more popular version is actually when man was created first without woman, everything else was created, and then at the very end, a rib bone is plucked out and woman is created. And that is Genesis 2.5 to 2.23. And this is not reaffirmed uh, in any other part, really. Mm-hmm. It's reaffirmed in, like, the Talmud and stuff. Yeah. But So I, I thought that was um, interesting. <laughs> so I would definitely recommend checking that out. I would be interested um, when when we talk about things a little more, like if you grant came across any stories that kind of feel similar to Genesis, like either mm-hmm. in the way like creation happened. Um, and also just looking at the story of Adam and Eve as a way to explain human suffering. And so there's like the labor pains for Eve and there's mm-hmm. the need to constantly work for a living for Adam. Um, oh man, we could spend countless segments on breaking down <laughs> the many <laughs> dichotomies of Genesis and what it means and oh my goodness this is a, it, it makes for a fun conversation at least for you know us yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly we're like Bible nerds <laughs> uh, it's like oh yeah let's talk about Adam and Eve today all right and all the many you know nuances of it but yes that would definitely be a great show it we could dedicate an entire show to a separate show. Just Genesis one, you know, we can try to cover one and two and three, but Monday nine to ten. <laughs> yeah. just we need like a five-hour show. We do, we do. <laughs> That's why I made it brief. So anyway, turning this over to Paul, my first question to you on your topics will be that I know that this is one of the oldest written stories that have ever been created so mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about the story of Gilgamesh sure so to start out um, just so uh, you, for clarity for everyone that's listening all of our two listeners <laughs> <laughs> yes hello you guys thank you for listening <laughs> one and two thank you um, I will always refer I have a resounding theme that I, I want to I want you guys to always keep in mind when I you know, give my thoughts on certain stories and historical events. And one of the tools that we use in as humans are the, the, the tool of a story, right? And for much of, I would say, for more of our lived human experience, most of our stories were oral. You know, we live in a unique age where we, we, we can uh, relay these stories in writing, right? But I, I believe most of our stories throughout our history, which probably a lot of them have gotten lost, were done through oral, you know, uh, means. So with that said, there's an interesting term called an archetype, right? And an archetype is a universally recognized and reoccurring symbol, right, Uh, with different motifs, characters, or theme in literature, mythology, religion, and in art, right? And these archetypes are like fundamental elements that evoke deep and often unconscious, right, responses in individuals, right? So think about that. Keep that in mind. And they tap into shared human experiences, emotions, and current cultural symbols that transcend time and cultural boundaries, right? Um, Archetypes can manifest in many forms, right, including... uh, 
characters, situations, again, symbols, again, and narrative patterns. Keep that in mind, these narratives, right? And they serve as the building blocks for storytelling and provide a framework for understanding and interpreting human experience. So this is where our focus is going to be. Um, and these archetypes can be both characters like the hero or the villain, which we'll talk about with the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, and broader concepts such as the hero's journey or the quest for knowledge. The list goes on and on. You know, arch these, these archetypes are built into uh, pretty much everything and in, in how we conceptualize, you know, uh, our thoughts. And it just it goes on and on. I want to get stuck there. But anyway, just a little fun fact. Carl Jung, who's one of my favorite persons to read, a lot of, you know, philosophers might not agree with the things he says, but I think he, he, he invokes interesting thoughts. But anyway, he was a, a Swiss psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, and he introduced the concept of archetypes in the field of analytical psychology. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, yes. He's the father of it. And according to Jung, archetypes are innate. They're universal symbols and they're themes that are part of the collective conscience, right? The collective unconscious, I should say, sorry. And they're also shared by all humans. So I thought that was interesting for him to say all humans, not just some, right? And he also believed that these, act, these archetypes, they influence our thoughts, behaviors, and cultural expressions. So let me give you some examples of some common archetypes. And we'll constantly come back to this, and I don't want to explain each one type because we're limited with time. So I'll just give you a general overview of, what, you know, some common ones. And some common ones are, you know, obviously the, hero, the hero's journey, the wise mentor, the shadow, which represents the darker hidden aspects of ourselves, right? And uh, the mother figure, which is a big one, uh, one of the biggest ones, the tricksters, and there's many more, you know, and we'll cover many different types of archetypes. Um, and again, these archetypes can be found in myths, folklore, literature, religious text, and even modern storytelling, which is pretty much the same. Um, but the key thing is these archetypes, they serve as the fundamental, fundamental patterns and symbols that resonate across cultures and time periods, right? That's very important. And they provide a rich and shared vocabulary for expressing and understanding the complexities of the human condition. So in short, I personally see these, I've expanded my uh, definition of what these archetypes are. And I, I really do believe that hidden within the archetypes of these, these stories that we, you know, we've learned of old and we kind of carry these same themes into today, I see that there's, there's, there's some hidden message in, these, in the way of these archetypes and, and, and why they were, why they are structured the way they are. I think in that, there's a there's a, something to be explored, you know. I'm not quite there yet, you know. I'm a young researcher, you know, uh, but I'm getting there. But uh, I really do. It's, it's think of it like this. Uh, I don't remember. It was in the '90s or the early 2000s where they uh, they were able to map, you know, they the they uh, volumized the entire human uh, DNA genome. Oh yeah. Was that in the 90s or the early 2000s? I think it was even earlier than that, wasn't was it? it? Wasn't was it, it in the like 80s? the 30s or something crazy? No, no. Well, anyway, the fact checkers <laughs> out there, you guys look, look we all over the place. The fact check trackers out there, you know, you can you can look this up, but whenever, you know, we've we've currently we have 
volumes and volumes and volumes of books that have the complete, you know, human genome, which is, if you don't know what that is, that's just the DNA and, you know, all the little ACTG different combinations, you know, mapped out. But, right, we don't know what all those combinations mean. And that's where I'm going with this. I feel like we don't know what all the different combinations of these archetypes actually means. We have and we have some meaning in some context, to, you know, to draw upon based on historical events to kind of line up with, you know, the archetypes of these stories. But I believe that, you know, these stories, we just know the DNA part. We know, yeah. we know the genome, but we don't actually know exactly um, what they actually mean. So... What was the question? Oh, that could get <laughs> You see how I can get lost? It's okay. It's the philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So the epic, uh, we got to be short because we're running short on time. So I'll just give you a brief overview. Uh, the epic of Gilgamesh is an ancient Mesopotamian st- uh, poem. Uh, and it originated in Samaria. You know, some may have some other thoughts, but for, for now, we're just going to stick with the Sumerian tablets. Uh, and that would, uh, the geography on that would probably be, was that around Iraq, right? In the Iraqi area? Yeah, the Mesopotamian yeah, area, so like Syria, area. Too, yeah. Yeah. Uh The earliest versions of the epic were written in Sumerian, and later versions were composed in Akkadian. And just so you know, this this time period, what do we agree upon between 4,000 and 2,500 B.C.? Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> yes, because we, off air, we were like battling over the time <laughs> we <were> period. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll lay out some... Uh, uh, some general things about the story. The protagonist of 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 the epic is Gilgamesh, who was the main character of the epic. Right, he is a historical figure who likely ruled uh, the city of Uruk. Hopefully, I said that right. Uh, don't look at yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a rough estimate, we'll say around twenty seven hundred BCE. I don't know. We'll see what Acer says about that one. Uh, he is portrayed as a powerful and arrogant king who embarks on a quest for immortality after the death of his friend Enkidu. Now, there's way more to the story than that, but I'm just giving you, you know, a brief synopsis of this thing. Uh, some of the themes that you'll see running throughout this poem, and did I mention that there was 12 tablets? Yeah, you know, I think so. Did I? Okay. Well, there's 12 tablets, people. And, you know, you have Sumerian versions, you have Babylonian versions, you have uh, Akkadian versions. There's different versions, and they and the, there are also different time periods of these different versions, but it's pretty much the same story. So keep that in mind, archetypes, people. Uh, the epic explores universal themes such as friendship, the fear of death, the quest for mentality, and the responsibilities of leadership, which is very interesting. It also addresses the relationships between humans and the divine. Ooh. And I think this is one of our, you know, we, we get our first glimpse at... Uh, in, in writing the thoughts of what humans were thinking and about God and things outside of themselves, which is very important. Um, I wonder if we should stop there because look at the time. Hmm. Well, maybe we can... This is like a cliffhanger. <laughs> this could be a little bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah. Maybe like one question that you could address is like, mm-hmm. From the archetypes that, and we can get more into like yeah. what specific archetypes. So we can uh, talk about time. the archetypes and, and leave the story for. We'll open with the story next time. That way we'll have. We can. A little bit of a refresher, and you know. 
Because I don't want to, if I get too deep in the story, yeah, it's going to be like, be, yeah, like be well, tell me more, you idiot. <laughs> you can't just leave I'll like probably that. be saying that too. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Again, people, it's our first show, so we have to figure out our, uh, you know, our times. And plus, like, we don't, we're not going to take ourselves so seriously with uh, disseminating the information because Acer and I, you know, we have a, a good working relationship. And not only do we do this podcast, but we have our own club. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Hello, R-U-C. Yes, plug the club. We have right. Shabbat lunch every yeah. Friday. You should come anyway. That's right. <laughs> but, um, you know, eventually as the show grows, you know, I think the... I'm like the holistic kind of a guy with things, so if we don't stick to a script, we don't stick to a script. So, But, yeah, with the archetypes then, since, um, you know, I'll finish with that, and we'll get into the epic of Gilgamesh next time. Um, But just keep in mind, with these archetypes, they're the... They're, the themes are still the same today, which I think is amazing, which which it tells you that there's truth to the story. And, and I think we spoke about this off air, that I believe the stories that have survived within these archetypical formats are the stories that have truth to them. Think about the millions, possibly billions of people that have come before us that we don't know about, right? They handed down so many stories through, you know, oral means. Yet these stories, although some of them are in writing, they started orally and they made it to writing, right? Why did they make it to writing and why the others not, right? So I think the ones that have truth to them are the ones that we see today. And I think that is an interesting thing. Because I can come up with so many different kinds of stories. I mean, as we get in, as we talk about this more later on, you know, today's different archetypal stories. You know, you have science fiction, and you have the femme fatale, and then you have the gender things, right? You know, all these things are relevant, and all these things are real, and, and there is a truth in all these archetypal type of stories in the modern day as well. But that archetype is so ancient. Yes. And for it to be present in everything and then and that thread of truth that runs through it, you know, it's something that I think extends beyond us, you know, for those who don't believe in anything outside of us. So I think we can leave them with that thought. Think about that. Yeah. Think about what connects us and the human yes. experience. Yes. yes. <laughs> Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, actually. It's at beyond underscore babble. Yes. Um, and I guess next week. Yes, my we little will... bitch princess. Love you for doing everything. Yes, thank you so yes. much. For <laughs> <helping> <laughs> Her real name is Nat. I'm sorry, you guys, but this is, you know, I'm able to, she's mine, baby girl, and I can say what I want about her. <laughs> because I love her. <laughs> but she does our little, uh, she's like our little, uh, what do I call her? Our social media specialists. Yes. You know, this neat Acer and I suck with the technology, y'all. So. Yeah, we don't talk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so tune in right. next Monday at 10 o'clock. Uh, we will plan to start on time um, next week. And we will open with the story of Gilgamesh. And also, yes. I guess, talk a little bit about what we're named after, the Tower of Babel and those yes. archetypes. Oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about it. We did it. We'll talk See? about it next time. <laughs> we screwed up. <laughs> So and we do welcome. Uh, do we have a page where people can give us feedback? Um, I, I would, would recommend the Instagram. Instagram at Beyond underscore See, look, Babble. This is, we're telling her she called it the Instagram because that's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Listen, I'm doing my best. <laughs> I don't even have an Instagram. I don't have nothing. So it's like, okay. Yeah, that, but that would be cool if you guys gave us feedback, you know, things you like, things you would like to hear about, you know, help us improve the show. Yes, I agree. I strongly Allow this community it. for people. It's, it's not for one people. But thank you for uh, being here with me today, Paul. Thank and you, I'll Acer. see you next week. See you next week. Bye, guys.